1: I'm your host, Stella. I'm Kimberly Rockmore, your Watchtower News Newsdesk correspondent. And this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, episode 18 for March MMXI. As you may already be aware, in the early afternoon hours of Friday, March 11th, 2011, a devastating earthquake, initially estimated to be a magnitude of 8.9, struck off the northeastern coast of Japan. Thankfully, the entire country is literally built to withstand earthquakes, and there were only few major damages reported because of the earthquake and its aftershocks, which still continue to this very moment. However, the mighty tsunamis that followed in the wake of the Great Japan earthquake inflicted such immense destruction that words like catastrophic and apocalyptic have been used continually by the worldwide media as they try to attempt to put into words the absolute horror that had unfolded before their very eyes. Please help with the Red Cross relief effort in Japan. For people in the United States, they can text Red Cross to 90999 to make a $10 donation. For people in Canada, text Asia, that's A S I A, or Red Cross, that's R E D C R O S S, to 30333 to make a $5 donation. For more information and to learn more ways to help, please go to the Red Cross website at www.redcross.org. Please help. Every dollar will go a very long way, and every donation will make a difference and potentially save a life. Bad Girl to Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 pa- trade paperbacks. Examples of the prices you may encounter are Detective Comics number 416 from 1971 in good condition for $7.50, or Detective Comics number 417 in very good condition for $15.30. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Once again, examples of the prizes you may encounter are June's Batgirl number 21 and Birds of Prey number 12, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Okay, so I'm really invigorated. Just went on a 12-mile bike ride, which in the metric system, uh, unless I'm incorrect, is about seven. Uh, I'm sorry, 16 kilometers. Uh, so feeling good. I, I made a poor life decision, however, because it's about. I guess it's below 60, and I thought I could get away with just shorts and a t-shirt. Um, but it was actually really frigid, especially when going down some hills. So you know, lesson learned. Let's just hope I don't get sick because of this. But let me just jump into the, you know, the the crux of the, the podcast, this episode. I'll start off with some questions, then go into comments. Kimberly will hop on for some news, and then of course, uh, those wonderful reviews. So let's just get started. First off, I have to apologize to Mike out there. I in error thought that I was uh, addressing Michael Bailey as if that is the only Michael that, that I know that exists on the planet. So I'm so sorry. My, it was not Michael Bailey. So I, I felt terrible afterwards when he commented on, on my, uh, my website that he is actually not Michael Bailey, but he was flattered. So I do apologize. That will not happen again. So first up in the question category, at least we have Cool B. Cool B says, Hi Stella. Great episode as always. Hope you and Kimberly both feel better soon. We both do. Thankfully I'm over the cold and so is Kimberly. Also I hope you have lots of fun in Utah with your friends. I did. Uh, very worn out afterwards. And there were uh, about 17 inches uh, of new snow just dumped right that first day that I was there. And powder is just kind of this this beast that i had never even really encountered before and it's tough because when you fall which luckily doesn't hurt it's it wears you out trying to get up you're just using everything to attempt to get up but you're digging yourself in deeper but it was a wonderful experiment uh experience it was just i think i wrote i don't know if it was twitter but just facebook if you don't believe in god just go Go to Utah, go snowboarding when there's powder because something, some being had to have made that as beautiful as it is. Okay, and then he continues, the Harry Looney Tune, oh yes, that I was uh, talking about before. His name is Gossamer, oh, thank you so much, yes, I just could not remember that. You might already have heard this, but just in case you haven't, at San Diego Comic Con last year at one of the panels, it was mentioned that Cassandra Kane would be showing up sometime in the future in a project Jeff Johns was working on outside of comics. I did not hear that, uh, but just having the name Jeff Johns attached to that, I, I hope that relieves a lot of the panic that people may be feeling, uh, and the anger as well uh, towards uh, Cassandra's neglect. I'm tempted to get the Batman Beyond Return of the Joker Blu-ray as well, but the time length listing on the back of the box has me wondering which version it really is. If it is truly the unedited version, then I'll replace my DVD, but if it isn't the unedited version, I'll just keep mine. So basically, I'll be waiting to see reviews when it comes out. I, too, uh, am wondering about this. And perhaps they just have the time, if they have both versions, then they are, they're just listing one of the times. But I think IGN is definitely a source that I'll probably hop on when it, it pops out to see which version it has. And hopefully closer, because it comes out in April. Hofe- hopefully, when we get closer, we'll know for sure. couple of things on the Babs in the Tube uh, segment, you asked about the henchmen's names. I'm not sure on the spelling of the second name, but they're both references to boxing terms. Cauliflower ear is a term to describe an ear after it's taken a blow, often in boxing, and KO refers to a KO. Or a knockout. Ah, I should have should have gotten that. Keep up the awesome work and fly on, Babs Lover. You're a loyal listener and purveyor of semi-useless trivia. Cool, B. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know that someone else further on also lets me know about these, and I just just didn't know kind of the link, or I just I should have known at least the ko, the k a y o but I just just did not put it together. But to go off on a slight tangent, I did rent The Fighter, which has, oh yes, Batman, uh, a.k.a. Christian Bale, and Mark Wahlberg. And I thought it was pretty good. I give it an 8 out of 10. Uh, At some points, the family drama within the movie was a bit bit much but uh overall it was a pretty good movie so i do recommend that but anyways back to this uh then we have josh hey stella this is the first episode i've listened to in a while i stopped listening to podcasts for some reason and had episodes backed up like crazy so i'm just picking up again here i have to say that this episode upset me a little because i kind of wanted to watch the lion king after but became frustrated when i realized that i don't have it on dvd I don't recall much of the second half of the episode because I was too preoccupied with searching cabinets, drawers, storage boxes, the space between couch cushions, and the musty little section under the sink, but all to no avail. Yeah, s- sir, I, I just don't know why you would put any DVD in the musty section under the sink, but uh, Okay. I couldn't think of any particularly strange questions that I usually ask podcasts, but what about this? Are there any Batgirl or any comic stories that you initially didn't really like, but upon rereading it, changed your opinion, or vice versa? That's a that's a really good question. I'm sure there have been Spidey stories that uh, I didn't like to begin with, but you know the the second read through it may have seemed better to me and this has happened actually recently especially with you know the brand new day and it sometimes depends on my mood because if I'm in an awful mood I don't know if this happens to anyone else if I'm in a bad mood then the, the comic just does not get a fair shake and especially if I have to review it it's, it's really unfortunate for that comic so rereading it again if I'm in a, a better state of mind often um, brightens my perception of that comic as for any Batgirl comic No, that hasn't really happened. I think, I mean, Birds of Prey is kind of the one that I've been really um, heavy on the grades with. So I think I should probably go back and perhaps when Death of Oracle is done, actually read through it again and see if I really do keep that same opinion. But up to right now, you know, I think my opinions really do stay the same uh, however I initially stated them. He then asks, do you prefer classic villains, reimaginings of classic villains, or original villains? I'm I'm all for classic villains, and I guess I kind of see those the same as original villains, but I could see how there's a fine line. Original villains are great. The first time they come out, I think it, it's just so wonderful, especially, you know, way back when, you know, the first time that we might have seen Shocker or the Wizard or, you know, in D.C., the first time we may have seen the Joker. I mean, those are awesome. Um, I don't really like the reimaginings, you know, putting someone new into their body, actually maybe killing somebody. You know, they just killed off the original Hobgoblin. It's kind of unfortunate, but I guess I understand that the generation that had, you know, the, the original uh, Hobgoblin, Roderick Kingsley, or, you know, if this ever happens, heaven forbid, to the Joker or something, you know, that generation is is older now, and I understand that comics try to cater towards the kids, so they have to make uh, a newer villain, but, you know, I'm just i i'm adverse to change i just don't like change so i like to see the original shocker and the uh, the original joker and everything like that so it'll be interesting you know if i'm still alive 50 years from now and batgirl keeps going on if one of these villains that we have uh one of her new rogues changes um or if they if they remain the same throughout that should be interesting That's all I've got. Love the episode, and I won't blame you for my woes. I'll just have to find a vulnerable-looking child to steal it from. Well, as you know, he wrote that, um, I guess, in February. Josh, I hope you found, or yes, I hope you had found, a copy of The Lion King that you could watch, and you didn't make a small child cry. Okay, next up we have TNR105, who asks several questions. Hi, Soa. I was reading through my back issues of the Tim Drake Robin series, and a thought hit me. The character of Robin had always faced rather lackluster villains. Crazy quilt, anyone? It wasn't until Tim was pitted against... Anarchy that he met his equal, and I would say in all honesty, Anarchy was his top villain. While Steph's main villain as spoiler was her father, Clue Master, I was wondering what would be the ideal villain for Steph as the new Batgirl. For example, Dick has clashed with Blockbuster numerous times, but I would say that Deathstroke would probably be his actual arch nemesis, especially if you have watched the Teen Titans animated series. So what type of villain would be the ideal foe for Steph, her big bad, if you will? Apart from the psychological battle Batman and Joker have, their gimmicks... Also kind of interesting. Our hero is in the image of a bat, something usually scary, and the Joker is a clown, something that usually brings joy. But I swear he is the reason kids are usually afraid of clowns. This is another... (laughs) I I always thought it was because of it, but I guess that's just me. Uh, This is another ironic example of how their minds work. All in all, what would go into making an arch enemy for Stephanie, someone who could be her mental... Uh, and physical opposite, her doppelganger. Very good question. Well, yeah, I mean, being an arch enemy, in my opinion, is is really their opposite. Yeah, exactly like you're saying, her her mental and physical opposite. I think that <coughs> Stephanie is kind of weak in the area of of fighting compared to other other backgirls that we have had. So I think that this her, her arch nemesis is really going to challenge her uh really going to make her put up a fight i think mentally she is just going to be a really evil and angry person because steph is really i mean the steph we know and love is really bubbly and sarcastic and i could just see this person being the type of person that would kick puppies just an evil downright evil person And I don't know if we've encountered this person yet. um, Someone really sadistic. Um, You know, Black Mass could potentially be, you know, her arch nemesis. But it'd be better if it were like the daughter of Black Mass. If Black Mass ever were to have a daughter and she were to turn out like um, Sin, the daughter of Red Skull, then that would probably be an awesome arch enemy. I'd like to see or I will, I, I guess I will like to see what Slipstream is like, um, and, and see how this character fits into her rogues gallery. Um, as an evil thought, which really may make some people upset with me, you know, if Cassandra Kane ever went evil, that would be Stephanie's arch nemesis. Whether Cassandra Kane will ever turn evil, I cannot. I think a lot of people would be pretty upset over that. But I think, you know, that that could work. You know, even if we make Cassandra Kane a kind of red hood character where she's doing things she think she thinks is right but in a uh, dirty sort of way and of course she rubs up against Stephanie Think it could work. But to get off that that touchy subject, continuing on, TNR asks I have another question. You have made it clear that Damien Wayne is a character you love to hate, and as Michael Bailey once said, the last time we had a Robin this annoying, we voted to kill him. It seems Damien is such a little DB, which is something the DC Universe characters feel about him. We know Steph's opinions, but over in the Teen Titans book, Rose Wilson, Ravager, was even taken aback by what an aggressive little ball of hate he is. At first I agreed with you, but after reading several Damien stories, I have finally realized what a complex character he is. From his appearance in Batman and Son, through the Resurrection of Ra's al Ghul, it showed though he is a little scrapper, he has low confidence and feels he needs to prove how badass he is to everyone, especially his father. Having been rejected by his mother for standing with the bad family, the writers have toned down his annoyingness and just made him a little curmudgeon with a soft side. In Streets of Gotham, we see him interact with his peers and make friends with Colin, a.k.a. abuse, and get weak in the knees around Katana. He showed his humanity while investigating the murders of children around Christmas and even vomited at the level of violence Victor Zaz used to commit. I've really enjoyed the brotherly relationships he has with Dick, whom he respects, and Tim, who he has a rivalry with. In his own twisted way, he truly cares for his family even going so far as to name his Cat Alfred in the future. If that's not a sign of love, I don't know what is. Though he is making progress, I think there is one character who would be able to whoop Damien's butt into gear and progress him to the level of a good kid. Let's see. Is there anyone else we know who was raised, brainwashed, and had their mind warped by the League of Assassins? Someone who, upon meeting Batman, joined him in his fight against crime to make up for past deeds and the sins of their assassin parents? Now, where have I heard that before? Looking back at when Damien learned that Steph was the new Batgirl, his reaction was, Aw, man, I wanted to meet Cassandra. She sounded cool. Though they still have yet to meet, I think Cassandra would be the one character who is able to relate to Damien and see where he's coming from. Cass, more than anyone, would realize how hard it would be to unlearn what you have learned and integrate yourself into the Batman family. Damien should have a stable sibling-like relationship with her, someone upon whom he could depend and guide. Uh, and she could guide him. I think one of the reasons Dick is so, oh dear, is so hard on Damien is that he was pretty much raised by Bruce from the start, and Damien and Cass both had to put their killer instincts aside to be accepted by Batman, and therefore were pretty much blank slates who had to be taught to channel their skills to fight crime. I personally think this would be a great dynamic, that is yet to be explored in the comics and would really show how far they've come and redeemed Damien in the eyes of us readers. Your thoughts. Wow. Uh, that's pretty elaborate and well thought out. Thank you very much. Yeah, Damien. Sometimes he's really annoying. And I, I want him to go away. And then, you know, I know that Brian Q. really likes him, so I give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I. I the people that he's with. Currently, I think they're helping him, though I I don't really know how. But in different in different aspects, um, I was going to say I don't know how Stephanie is helping him, but actually I do know how. Uh, she's really humanizing him. I think you're right, though. I mean, bringing in Cassandra, they are very similar characters, and I think that would really work out for both of them, almost. I think they could probably teach each other a lot of things. I do wonder if they're so alike that it could be a problem. But, you know, given the right writer, I think that would be an interesting interaction. So, yeah, thank you. Good question, but I guess we'll have to wait until this... Not really talked about series or, you know, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait until we actually see Cassandra Kane in a comic book again. And then he finally finishes off. P.S. Now that you have switched sites for BTO, is the old message board defunct too? I ask because the link on your website now redirects to the Batman Universe boards. Just want to know where to submit feedback besides email Fly on, fellow Babs lover. Yeah, this is a good question. And to be honest, I don't know if I have an actual answer. I do still have the other row to Oracle boards. But there's not really been much, if any, uh, discussion on them, any movement. And when I moved... um. The the head Dustin um, of of uh, TBU he suggested that perhaps I come over to their boards and and have a, a section there, so that definitely will be. I guess, updated more. Whether people come over there or not, I, I, I'm not sure. Hopefully, you know, we can drag some of those those Batman Welvers over to, to Batgirl. I haven't done much, if anything, with those boards because I had been waiting for a new episode to come out and to actually put something on there. So, I still check the other boards, uh, the Batgirl, the Oracle boards, but I guess perhaps the new home right now is on the tbu boards okay next up we have drew hi Stella. i just want to tell you how much i've been enjoying the podcast i heard about it through michael bailey's jsa podcast and as a longtime fan of Stephen babs it's been a lot of fun catching up on episodes I'm learning a lot about Badz's earlier adventures, and it's great hearing someone else gush about how fantastic the current Batgirl title is. I'm looking forward to if and when you get to interview Chuck Dixon. I seem to remember you mentioning that Identity Crisis is what got you into DC. Out of curiosity, have you had a chance to read any of Dixon's old Robin issues? If not, I highly recommend it. They can probably be had pretty cheaply in quarter bins or at comic conventions, and it's really interesting to watch Stephanie get gradually fleshed out in her guest appearances. She's definitely a slightly different character than she is in the current Batgirl title, a little edgier, jaded, more um, sexually aggressive, but a lot of fun nonetheless. Finally, a hypothetical If you had the option of restoring Barbara's legs and having her be the one and only Batgirl again, but she would not have her own title and would only make, say, one or two guest appearances a year in a Batman title, or keeping her the way she is now, starring a B.O.P., or your cast member in Batgirl, which would you choose? Keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next episode. Okay, so first of all, about older Robin issues. No, I've not had a chance to check those out and they're actually difficult to find some of the the spoiler and stephanie issues even in Detective Comics, because the last show that I went, I, I was looking for um, her first appearance and some of the later ones, and I was having some trouble. So it is actually, it's a little tough. But maybe I'm just not going to, to the right comic shows. Uh, for your hypothetical, I'm going to have to go with the latter. I would rather see Babs than not see her and have her, I guess, be whole again. I I, um, I just, I like the character, and I like to see how she grows and the things that she gets into and how she handles herself and uh, really grows into her leadership position. So I would rather see her than not see her. Next up we have Jeffrey. Hi Stella. Just wanted to tell you that I love your podcast. I heard the quick spot for it at the end of a comic geek speak show and decided to give it a shot. I am eight episodes in starting from the beginning. And I'm really enjoying it. Needless to say, I'm a huge Babs fan, but I'm also loving your presentation. The music is a great touch. Your fake sponsors are hilarious, and you just sound really good in general, prepared but so very natural at the same time. I particularly appreciate that you're funny, but don't laugh at your own jokes. Your reviews of the early row comics are great for me, as I haven't read a lot of those. Not sure that's such a bad thing in some cases. And your commentary is fantastic. It's also nice how much you appreciate Stephanie. I love the new series and your reviews are a great companion. Hopefully I get caught up soon and then I can contribute some questions. BTW, I am another guy who loves the bab relationship. I'm always rooting for them. Bruce and Selena is a close second for me. Anyway, thanks again for a great podcast. Oh, thanks, Jeffrey. Um, I'm glad we've got another on the Dick and Babs team, I guess. Oh, that'd be great to, uh, instead of Team Edward, Team Jacob, to make a Dick Babs team, but I don't know how many people would understand. And I, I am also a fan of Bruce and Selena, and I've been watching the Batman the Animated Series you know from the beginning and I love those episodes when Selena Kyle is on they're so wonderful Cat Scratch Fever is one of my favorites you know when she's um hit with or she's bit rather by Isis when he's kind of I don't know how you would describe the state they were in but Milo that crazy scientist and then Tiger Tiger oh so good I just I don't know I really like their their interactions And finally, from Charlie, after finally catching up on your show, I just want to write in and let you know that I love your show. Your love for Babs is quite evident, even without you actually stating it, and your coverage of the current book has been great. I also want to congratulate you on your celebrity interviews you've got lined up and for the success you've had so far with the petition. Charlie also has a podcast of his own called "Superman in the Bronze Age," and also uh, he let me know about the uh, the purpose of the henchman's name names in the the Riddler episode from the the Batman TV show. So he also knew what was going on, and I was just not knowing. Um, but yeah, that so this was a pretty heavy month for for questions and comments. So hopefully, I. You know, I always worry about not answering or just sounding like a duttering idiot. So hopefully that was not the case here. And thanks for your comments and listening. And um, I think it seems apparent I have more than five listeners, which is always good. Okay, so we're done with that. So now I'm actually going to turn to Kimberly Rockmore at the Watchtower News Desk. Kimberly, what sort of news do you have for us today? Well, Stella, have you heard of the Rondo Awards? rondoaward.com slash rondo slash rondos dot html. The Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards were created by David Colton and Kerry Gamble at the Classic Horror Film Awards in 2002. The awards are fan-based and have no connection to any commercial sponsor. Anyone in fandom can vote to propose nominees. The Rondo Award itself, shown at the right on the website, features a bust sculpted by illustrator Kerry Gammel and cast by modeler Tim Lindsay. The statuette is a miniature version of the bust of Hatton, seen in the universal film House of Horrors, which came out in 1946. The Rondos have been praised by recipients for their quiet beauty and evocation of classic horror. Nominees for the Rondo are selected from suggestions by horror fans, pros and enthusiasts offered all year at the CHFB. Each year's nominees are finalized by classic horror fan David Colton, with the help of more than 20 classic horror fans from around the world and with expertise in all parts of fandom. Each year, nominees for Best Model or Collectible are developed with the help of the Universal Monster Army, thanks UMA. Voting is by an electronic ballot or by email to t a r a c o at a o l dot com. Votes for the ninth annual awards for work appearing in 2010 began on February 13, 2011, and will continue through midnight march 27th 2011 winners will be announced here and on the chfb on march 28th 2011 why should i care you may now be asking yourself well Batgirl number 14 terror in the third dimension if you recall dracula is actually coming off the screen is up for best horror comic it is against american vampire astounding Wolfman, belia tales from the grave edge of doom the goon Graphic Classics, Hellboy, Double Feature of Evil, Moon Lake, Pinocchio, Vampire Slayer, Victorian Undead, Vincent Price Presents, The Walking Dead, or of course, A Write In. As you listen to this, voting may be over, but if it is not, please go and vote for Batgirl number 14 and check out the results at the very least. Next up, we have Batman Arkham City News. The release date has finally been. Released October 18th, 2011 is the day that it will hit shelves and probably fly off just as quickly. Already confirmed in the game are the characters Catwoman, Two-Face, Harley, the Joker, Rilla, Calendar Man and Zaz. And perhaps even Black Mask, if the latest trailer to be released is not being deceptive. Whether Batgirl, Robin and perhaps even Oracle will play a part in this game is not yet known. That's all we have here at the Watchtower News Desk. Back to you, Stella. Thanks, Kimberly. I'm pretty uh, excited about Batman Arkham City, and I do hope that it brings in other f- family members of the Bat family. Okay, well, now it's time. doo do doo doo do doo, 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 doo. It's time for the reviews. First up, we have Detective Comics number 416, The Deadly Go-Between came out in October 1971. Writer Frank Robbins and artist Don Heck. Also included in this issue is Man Bat Madness, Rex Circus Detective, and The Case of the Gold Dust Death. Commissioner Gordon's friend, Officer Jim McLean, has been murdered, and the commissioner has vowed to catch his friend's killer. Worried for her father, Barbara Gordon decides to do her own investigation as Batgirl. Tapping her father's phone, she overhears a phone message from Batgirl, telling him to meet her at Park and Elm. Traveling there to catch her imposter in the act, Batgirl finds herself captured by thugs. As Batgirl soon discovers that the plot is much deeper than it first appeared, Gordon picks the fake Batgirl up and zooms away. The fake backroll takes Gordon to a building which houses a group of Icemen, a group with a Chavez-like leader which is very anti-authoritarianism. Batgirl lockpicks a car and shows the gun used to slay McLean as well as his badge. Gordon, thinking that Iceman leader Zed Kurtz is responsible for McLean's death, waits in hiding for Zed to leave the building. As the Iceman exit and the fake Batgirl finds a place to roost, Gordon appears on his own. Then we have Detective Comics number 417, A Bullet for Gordon. Came out in November 1967. Again, writer Frank Robbins and artist Don Heck. Also included in this issue is Batman for a Night, Alfred Armchair Detective, and The Mystery of Edgar Allan Poe Solved. Continuing from the last issue, since the fake Batgirl has trapped Gordon by not telling him that Zed normally leaves by the side entrance, Gordon soon gets into a gunfight against the Crooks, but they are easily defeated due to the intervention of the real Batgirl. After stopping the crooks, Batgirl spots her imposter watching the fight. She knocks the girl out, takes her place, and hops onto a large truck where the real killer of Jim McLean is. It appears that Rods killed McLean because McLean was unable to be bought after he witnessed a heist at Gotham Harbor. The group then had to set up this elaborate plot in order to get Gordon off of their backs. The crooks are about to force Batgirl to unmask when the police show up with Commissioner Gordon to break them up. Afterwards, the commissioner offers to ride Batgirl home, who declines, not wanting to reveal her secret identity to him. However, that night as Barbara Gordon sleeps, her father watches over her, wondering when she will reveal to him that she is really Batgirl. That's right, folks. Holy suspense, Batman, you heard correctly. This issue is a landmark moment for Babs. Just like Mary Jane and Peter Parker, Chloe Sullivan and Clark Kent, Jim Gordon knows his daughter's secret and is willing to wait to hear it revealed by Babs herself. One wonders why now? Why was 1971, around the 37th appearance or so of the character, the time to pull this rabbit out of the hat? Was Babs and Batgirl losing some popularity and DC want to shock some life back into the character? Was this the reasonable route to go? Instead of having a, when will Lois find out about Clark moment, perhaps DC wanted it to be, when will Babs find out that Gordon knows? This furthers the relationship between the two and certainly does create some suspense. Another question one must ask is, when did Gordon find out about this? They don't really have too many interactions, Gordon and Backroll, that is. But as I've noted in past episodes, it seems strange that no one has put the pieces together. She went to Spain, and Backrow was there. She went to the Edgar Allan Poe exhibit, and Backrow was there. Now, if I had to guess, I would say that just like Spider-Man, her father had an inkling around the time of the Policeman's Masquerade, you know, way back in Detective Comics number 359. I'm sure there were clues here and there after that. This reveal does beg the question of how Jason Bard does not also know when their interactions occur much more frequently, and it's much more obvious that she's switching between the two uh, characters, identities, I guess. But let's go on to the rest of the story. While I would like to see Babs tackle some supervillains, I know this is annoying, I mention this every time, I think, I did actually enjoy this story with its twists and turns and the Charlie Chan-esque reveal. I wonder what it would be like to to have seen or actually put in this issue, you know, McLean actually being gunned down, perhaps showing his final mission and his upstanding character at the beginning of the issue. I also wonder if we are seeing too many fake bad girls. You know, it would have been an inventive idea if I hadn't read it in issue 388, uh, but that was, you know, back in 1969, so I guess I should let that go. I was a little shocked at Gordon's naivete, you know, being led astray so easily by the fake Batgirl. But then again, you know, I, c- I can see someone being so driven by revenge as to be blinded um, to everything else. I found the the office on a moving truck to be a little strange though certainly imaginative and then of course we have Gordon playing the part of a deus ex machina and totally rescuing Babs from being revealed. I found it a little unbelievable that he could hear her conversation while he was semi-conscious but uh we'll just we'll just let that go. Overall I think this was a, a really tight story with one heck of an ending. You know, the final scene really reminds me of something you would see in Batgirl Year One where, um all around it's kinda dancing around this issue of does he know? And of course the end, you know, poor Robin has to get dressed up in uh in Batgirl's clothing but you know we still wonder does he know and and is this the first time that or when I guess the first time was that he knew and I definitely have to ask I think Chuck Dixon and and Scott Betty if this issue was influential in their writing Batgirl Year One so I would give this a nine out of ten bats I think the ending certainly makes the grade for me. Okay, when I come back, I will review Batgirl number 18. It is probably one of the longest reviews that I've done on this show. So uh, (laughs) prepare yourselves. And Birds of Prey number 9. During the break, please enjoy another candidate for Stephanie Brown's theme song, the Mary Tyler Moore theme. So it's kind of an interesting one. And now, Zaius' Radio Hour. (laughs)
0: Time you're all alone, but it's time you started living. It's time you let someone else do some giving. Love
2: Presenting the amazing Spider-Man Classics Podcast, Year Two. Starring myself, John Wilson, along with Joshua Bertoni, Donovan Grant, and your favorite guest hosts of the comics podcasting community. Bringing you the classic 1960s adventures of Peter Parker, Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and the gang. As told by Stan Lee, John Romita, Don Heck, Jim Moody, John Buscema, And more. And to kick the year off, we're running a special episode in March with... uh, uh, Hold on, wait a second. Hey there, webheads. Twelve months ago, a very special podcast came onto your iTunes feed, and to
0: celebrate twelve months of that podcast being on your iTunes feed, we thought we'd take you on a special date to the movies, and what a movie it is! Why, it's about our very own webhead spinner, Spider-Man, the first installment of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, guest-starring one of the Power Rangers. Oh boy, we're in for a good time, so strap yourself in and here's the hosts. This isn't a way a podcast is supposed to work. Peter, you're seeing the Spider-Man Sam Raimi movie without me? Well, I know, Betty. I'm seeing it with all my friends, the Amazing Spider-Man Classics listeners. And you're invited, too. Even Liz Allen? Yes, Betty. Even Liz Allen. Okay. As long as Ned can come. You know why I hate you, Leeds? Because you have a right to listen to this episode with Betty. The shadow of Spider-Man isn't standing between your earphones.
2: Episode 28 kicks off the new year with an in-film commentary on the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man film. And then we continue on in future episodes looking at the further adventures of Spider-Man, an amazing Spider-Man, spectacular Spider-Man, and every guest appearance and cameo we can find. Only at Amazing Spider-Man Classics, found on iTunes and at amazingspiderman.lipson.com.
1: Okay, I'm not going to delay. I'm just going to hop right in. Back number 18, Chalk Heart Outline. Writer, Brian Q. Miller. Artist, Dustin Nguyen. Inker, Derek Friedolfs. And color, Sky Major. The quote that I pulled out from this issue, would you like to make the red-handed quip or should I? This isn't what it looks like. It looks like a blue-skinned pilgrim has a dead pimp's heart in his hands. Boy has cat friend, loses cat friend, cat friend goes on killing spree, girl arrives, boy shrinks girl, boy resizes girl, girl and boy find cat friend, cat friend attacks, girl and boy travel to limbo town and find female cat friend, cat friend and female cat friend meet, all is well. Since a lot of you may be already confused, let me go into a bit more depth. The issue begins with Batgirl hopping onto a scene involving a dead guy with a scratched face and four ladies of the night. Huh. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. She follows a trail of blood to a creepy, bluish-green, complexioned young man holding the smoking gun, which happens to be the dead guy's heart. After shrinking staff and placing her within a glowing orb, he explains that he lost his closest friend. And who is this bluish-greenish boy, you may ask? Why, it's Clarion! The witch boy, indeed. Poor Clarion rather foolishly interrupted the coupling of his cat, Tickle, and another cat. Oh my, if this were not a family-friendly show, I certainly would make a comment. And now he, i.e. Tickle, is out stealing hearts, literally. Speaking of the devil, Tickle is attacking some happy couple, remaking that scene in Lady and the Tramp, when Clarion and the now right-sized Batgirl happen upon him. Unfortunately for Batgirl, putting a stop to Tickle involves her fighting a six-feet-tall cat. She ends up knocking the cat out, and Clarion shrinks him into his orb. Since Tickle needs to find one of his own kind, Clarion transports himself and Batgirl, now in Pilgrim Getup, to Limbo Town. In a scene akin to one in the Harry Potter books, Steph feels the effects of the transportation, but they then continue on their way. The search begins for a female familiar. Steph talks shop with a bluish-greenish girl, which turns out badly and ends with Steph knocking her out. As all this is occurring, Clarion is in a tree trying to entice the girl's familiar, i.e. a female cat, into his orb. Cat meets cat, love happens, and Clarion and Steph leave Limbo Town. Later, at a Valentine's Day festival, Clarion and plainclothes Steph discuss the strange holiday. Steph is soon accosted by Jordana Kisses Clarion I still have no idea what she was thinking Starts people watching with Clarion While they eat sweethearts And then Clarion turns Jordana into a frog Okay, so this is One of the reasons that I like my show, and please stay with me, I'm not bragging, not being proud here, um, but you know, some people may be more attracted to the vintage books that I go over, or perhaps more to the new books that I'm going over currently you know many people listening may not have access to the vintage books which you know they tell me so they're just relying on my summaries and my reviews to try to understand what is going on Um, maybe they'll think oh it's a worthwhile story let me go find it by my summary summary alone you may think that this was the most ridiculous issue ever and you know why even waste money on this one shot here But let me just tell you, you thought wrong. I too, in error, right at the very beginning, thought that this was going to be an odd team-up, and yet I found myself thoroughly enjoying it. The dialogue between the two, Steph as her sarcastic self, and Clarion taking everything literally is fast and humorous. This is such a strangely different Clarion than I've seen in animated series like Batman and the recent Young Justice. Miller has fun with this character, and I think it really showed in the story he wrote in the DC Halloween issue. In fact, just the idea of Clarion telling Tico that he cannot have a mate is rather funny. You know, I guess we see what happens when you deny your pet's love. Uh, let this be a, a warning to you folks. Now, on my second read-through, I noticed that Steph shoots a grappling gun inside the orb, and it ends up banging around and hitting her. You know, it's, it's all in the details. I thought that was classic, and it's just such a small, little, minute detail. I'm a little concerned that no one in the real world thought that Clarion had a strange skin pigmentation, nor did anyone in the limbo land say anything about Steph having the absence of skin pigmentation. But, you know, once you think about it, it is nice that in the comic world, at least, characters must obviously be colorblind. I thought it was fun and ironic that Limboland was the polar opposite of our own world, with them having trials of non-witches, and of course, we having trials of witches. Steph and her bumbling through a conversation about bonnets, and then inflaming the girl was so great and awesome. You know, I was wondering what would happen in a duel, since Steph obviously has no magic abilities, and you know, in another tie to Harry Potter, we have her summoning her fist to the girl's face. There are certainly some strange moments in the final scenes. Yeah, I question why uh, Nguyen focuses mainly on the bodies of the annoying pack of girls with Jordana. Y- you really only see their, um, their hips up, but you never see their eyes or anything above that. I then, of course, wonder what the point was in having Steph kiss Clarion. Was it to prevent him from casting a spell? Uh, bad life decision, Steph. But, you know, I suppose the reaction at the very least was great. We end on a peaceful note with Sam uh, peacefully walking off into the proverbial sunset, and of course, Jordan is a frog. What is better than that? Uh, but since I mentioned Nguyen above, I do want to discuss his art. Um, I really liked how he started and finished the issue in a paint medium, but I don't really know how he decided when to use this medium throughout the issue. It just seemed like it switched from one to the other, often having the two media, you know, the the normal one that we're used to with kind of the, the digital coloring and then the painting, uh, all in the same panel. But I suppose if I had to try to connect it, I would probably say that he uses paint when depicting anything surrounding uh, magic or Clarion's world, and then using our, I guess, quote unquote, normal or status quo medium uh, for everything else. Let me, you know, end this rather long review talking about the one obvious thing that you all may be asking, was that Latin that Clarion was using at the very beginning of the issue? Yes! However, (laughs) bless his heart, Mr. Miller, it was not correct. And let me break this down for you. I don't know if he listens to the show or not, um, but obviously this is just kind of a fun way to let you know what it should have been um, in no way being um, disrespectful. No, so this is all in good fun. So, repario means uh, I find. Okay, so since I assume that Clarion was doing an incantation, I think he probably meant for the imperative form of this verb to be used. So, thus we want repari in the singular and reparate in the plural. Okay, so do you have that so far? Now, meus catus means my cat. Okay, so this makes sense so far. However. In the way that he's using it, it's the direct object of the command, find, because the subject in an, in an order would be you. It's always an understood you when you're giving a command to somebody. Okay, so we need it to be in the direct object case, which happens to be the accusative in Latin, uh, which we just ca- we tack on a, an M in this case. We drop off that S and add an M, so mayum, catum. But uh, you know the ancient Romans—they uh, just usually put the modifier after the noun. So we want catum meum. Okay. So if we put this all together, we have repari or reparate catum meum. Okay. So find my cat, and that would be the incantation. Okay. So I give this issue ten out of ten with a nice little nota bene, note well attached. Just be careful of your Latin, Mr. Miller, um, and remember. You know, I have your email and you have my email, so if you ever have a question, you just shoot me an email and I'll be able to help you out. But a great issue. It was a great one-shot. I thought it was better than that other one-shot we had with her and Damien. It was just really fun, and I don't know, you just would not imagine this issue to be fun and enjoyable. These this, these two mismatched characters, but it was great, and there were some wonderful moments. So definitely pick this up if you're not already picking back girl up okay and uh to end out our comic reviews birds of prey number nine the death of oracle part three of four the penultimate issue the soul and the sacrifice writer girl simone Artist Inyaki miranda and colors near rufino my quote well now looky here hitting the handcuffed woman guess somebody founds some wheelberries huh we begin this issue seeing the original black canary at the justice society headquarters She guilt-trips her daughter, Dinah, and lays it on thick. In close succession, we see Dinah's father, Roy, a.k.a. the original Speedy, Green Arrow, and Sin all making Dinah feel terrible. As Dinah resides in her head, Batman sits with her body and asks Oracle's advice. After a short debate, they decide that Dinah should be brought back to headquarters where Savant can look after her. Meanwhile, on the yellow cheese, Lady Blackhawk, Dove, and Hunters all are wishing they could sing The Wheels on the Bus, while Current finds their trackers and blocks them. Lady Blackhawk riles Current up, and after a smack to her face, it seems that there will be hell to pay. Hawk finally comes back online and breaks into the new headquarters, demanding to know where Dove is. After hitting Batman never a good idea and then getting knocked down a notch by oracle he definitely has his tail between his legs oracle goes to her hangar with a plan dinah relives the death of leon the daughter of roy harper and cheshire but catches mortis and breaks out of her mind leaving mortis in a bad state calculator complains about his headache and dove finally makes her move as Dove beats up on the baddies, Huntress realizes she has underestimated her abilities. Calculator points a gun to Zinda's head just as Oracle comes flying in. Calculator tells Current to light her up, and the last scene we see is of a ball of flames that used to be a helicopter and the birds standing in awe. Okay, I'll start my review with the end. Now, did Calculator not just tell Current to use half of his power? You know, when he destroys the helicopter and seemingly oracle inside it, though we're obviously not that naive, it would seem that Calculator would be furious. Instead, he is quite relieved that his headache seems to have disappeared. This seems just like a a strange character leap, in my opinion. Some minor details I really enjoyed throughout the issue uh, were the change in Current's costume when he decided to use his powers, if you saw it, it it negated the colors, and the fact that Dove really seems to be making a place for herself on the team, and I think we've seen this most in this issue than throughout the other ones. The scenes in Dinah's head are all well written, so well in fact that I almost felt like Dinah did deserve some of this because of all the things that she has done. I think that she defeated Mortis a little too easily in the end, but, you know, it does have a good message concerning the power of friendship. Oracle seemed out of character in this issue, uh, oftentimes seeming hard-hearted. While I could see her trying to maintain control of her feelings and dedicating herself to the mission at hand, uh, I, I feel like she would have been really more concerned about dinah and perhaps even borderline emotional but it it was more about you know put the job first and then friends second and i think we only see a little piece of her her emotion right before she leaves and then i wonder what batman is doing in here you know he seems to be having a little bit of difficulty deciding what to call dinah i could see this happening once but i mean come on they have been working together for a while dinah should be the first thing that he calls, not. Black Canary. I mean, Dinah. I mean, yeah, that, that really should not happen. I was a little disturbed by the scene of Leon's death, so I'm actually glad that I did not read the Rise of Arsenal series. I don't know about that. Again, Hawk. Hawk, 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 hawk. Even he does not want to be on the team. Is this a sign? You know, he lets slip that his one responsibility is Dove, but again, he really does not seem to fit here. What is going on? Something needs to happen with this person, and it needs to happen pretty soon. The interactions combined with the voiceover on the bus and on the rooftop just don't seem to mesh well. Some things I see as clever while others are more of a oh no you didn't type of comment or even ones that make me ask, okay where are you going with this? It seems like far too much is riding on this story arc and it is falling short of what it should be and what um, I think every Birds fan's expectations are. I'm not a fan of the art. Uh, I think there were definitely some weird faces going on. And really, I am anxiously awaiting a semi-permanent artist. I would give this, kind of well 7 out of 10 birds. I hope it picks up. I hope 4 out of 4 is better. And if it's not, that the new uh, new storyline gets better. Okay, so that's it for the reviews. Looking forward to next month to see where Batgirl is going and Birds of Prey, of course. Now we're going to hit up Babs in the Tube. Uh, If this is the first time for you listening to this, this is a segment or the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I am watching the 1966 Batman TV series. So today's episode is episode 97, season 3, episode 3. It came out on September 28th, 1967, and its title, Whale of the Siren. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Bird Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Madge Blake as Aunt Harriet Cooper, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. It guest stars Joan Collins as Lorelai Circe, A.K.A. the Siren, Ethel Merman as Lola Lasagna. Oh, such wonderful casting! Mike Mazurki as Allegro and Cliff Osmond as Adante gives Commissioner Gordon a dose of her vocal prowess and puts him under her spell. She then orders him to stow away in the Batmobile's trunk and, when it returns to the Batcave, to immediately report back to her with information as to the Batman's true identity. When the Commissioner inadvertently skips out on a meeting at his daughter Barbara's apartment, the Caped Crusader and the Boy Wonder, thinking something is up, speed back to the Batcave, unwittingly taking Gordon hidden in the trunk with them. While faithful butler Alfred Pennyworth dusts the Batcave, Gordon steps out of the Batmobile's trunk and recognizes him as Bruce Wayne's butler. From this vantage point, he learns Batman and Robin's secrets and immediately rushes to a nearby phone to tell the deadly Chan-choose herself. Although Gordon soon discovers the truth, he is sprayed with bat sleep by Alfred before he can reveal anything. Meanwhile, Batgirl is suspecting the siren is behind the disappearance of her dad and traces her to her hideout, where she hears her hypnotizing Bruce Wayne by phone with one of her high notes, uh, two octaves above high C, and then has him meet her at his office the, at the Wayne Foundation building. Domino Daredevil immediately dashes by Batgirl cycle to Gordon's office to use the Batphone to call the Batman, but reaches the boy Wonder. She informs him of the siren's nefarious plot and the dynamite detective's rendezvous at Bruce's office. Sadly, they arrive too late, as Bruce Wayne has already signed over everything he owns to the siren, including the Wayne family jewels. Batgirl and Robin confront siren, but she orders them out of her building. The two only pretend to leave. Robin uses the opportunity to leave behind a bug so that the villainous' activities can be monitored. The Caped Crusaderess and the Boy Wonder follow the Siren and her man, Allegro and Adante, to the roof, where she orders Bruce Wayne to jump off the building, and Batgirl and Robin are quick to respond. They are quickly spotted by Siren, and she orders Bruce Wayne to help Allegro and Adante dispose of them. But in the ensuing melee, Siren is accidentally knocked over the ledge, only to be saved by the Boy Wonder who promises to save her only if she sings an antidote note that restores hypnotized Bruce Wayne to normal. Having little alternative, she revives Bruce with the note, despite losing her voice for good. Chief O'Hara, who's been told to jump in a lake, is also released. Later, at Wayne Manor, Batman revives a still-sleeping Commissioner Gordon, who, to the dynamic duo's relief, has no recollection of what has previously transpired. The Penguin is later seen making an encounter with Lola Lasagna at the Gotham Racetrack. Okay, so some strange things happen in this issue. Probably the first one right off the bat is why Commissioner Gordon would come up with Babs's apartment as a suitable meeting place for the dynamic duo. That just seems odd. Out of all the places, really? Your daughter's apartment? You know, at least Robin also brings this up and thinks it is strange. We still have the telephone-telephone effect um, in this episode. I want you to call Batman. Batman? Yes, I'm glad that we needed clarification on who you are supposed to call. And thanks for the close-up on Robin's crotch in order to show safety first in all things. You know, buckle up, folks. We needed to see that. I do really, or I did, I guess, really enjoy the subterranean grotto hideout for the siren. I thought it really went well with um, kind of the classical theme that was going on. And wow, did we just see the origin of the answering machine? I kid you not, folks. It is in this episode. Oh, and Babs likes to talk to a bird in order to figure stuff out. Now, I, I, I don't know if this is healthier or less healthy than talking to oneself. But, you know, she did figure it out, so I guess that's good. Oh dear, the Batgirl theme song. Um, whoever decided to have someone sing it an octave up? did not think it through very carefully um if you any music majors out there just listen just type in youtube bad girl theme song and you've got where do you come from where do you go yeah it's why would you do that um oh this is kind of a great episode uh, to have on this episode because the commissioner gordon found out the same time that i reviewed the detective comics that the commissioner gordon found out unfortunately you know everything is reversed he doesn't remember it's very nice but it was kind of uh serendipitous that this happened at the same in the same episode and then of course we have the first solo team up between batgirl and robin too bad there's you know such an age difference uh siren's note still hurts my ears and I do question since when vigilantes actually abide wholly by the law. I, I understand it was it was playing around, but I mean Robin and Batgirl decide to leave lest they get in trouble for trespassing. It's uh, a little strange. But back to the, you know that soul team up comment. You know Robin comments on Batgirl's shape slash physical abilities when there's a bunch of stairs. He says, "You're in good shape. This could be the beginning of a wonderful relationship." Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. You know the fight scene uh, between, obviously, the henchmen and Batgirl and Robin really goes well. I think, and was awesome to see Robin and Batgirl really working together and almost dancing. It was nicely choreographed. Oh, and of course, as for the final scene, it is really funny that with Penguin, he's standing near the L row of the stadium, and then, of course, Lola Lasagna shows up. Um, always good. Always got to put in those witty moments. I give this episode 9 out of 10 bats. You know, certainly as witty as ever. Okay, to wrap up this episode, just going to give you my literary recommendation. Reading Lolita and Tehran by Azir Nafizi. This book is a memoir of the experience of the author, uh, Azir Nafisi, who returned to Iran during the revolution, uh, which took place uh, between 78 and 81, and lived and taught in the Islamic Republic of Iran until her departure in 1997. It narrates her teaching at the University of Tehran after 1979, her refusal to submit to the rule to wear the veil, and her subsequent expulsion from the university, life during the Iran-Iraq war, her return to teaching at the University of Alameh Taba her resignation, the formation of her book club, and her decision to emigrate. The events are interlaced with the stories of the book club, um, and the members in the book club consist of seven of her female students who met weekly at Nafisi's house to discuss works of Western literature, um, including, obviously, the aforementioned Lolita, which is pretty controversial and the texts are interpreted through the books that they read and um she also connects her life to those books that she read so as she was reading she um a a particular book certain events were happening and she would guide us through those also included in her memoir besides lolita are the great gatsby novels of henry james and novels of jane austen uh so I really enjoy this. Uh, This is the second memoir I had read, I guess, within uh, a span of a month, I suppose. And I I enjoyed this one better than the other one, though they were completely different. Angela's Ashes is a completely different memoir. But this was great because I really enjoyed Persepolis, which is a graphic novel, and it takes place during this time as well. And that is an autobiography as well. And just during this time, and, you know not knowing too much about Iran and and the troubles that they went through, it is interesting to gain insight into that um, because obviously I know more about United States history than other countries' history. So if you're ever interested in learning about other countries or um, perhaps Iran in particular or you know what Persepolis is, then I do recommend this, especially if you enjoy Lolita, which I've not read, though it is on my list, The Grey Gatsby, henry james and jane austen um so yes definitely a recommend for me as always send any questions or comments to BatgirltoOracle at gmail.com remember that there is a new website now it's batgirl to oracle.net.com will also take you there just in case your finger slips on the keys also remember to keep checking for that new itunes feed not sure when it's going to be up but just be checking Continue, of course, to sign the petition to get Backroll Year 1 back into production. I'm sure right now you've heard this so many times that you can just mimic what I'm saying uh, with your mouth. www.gopetition.com slash petition slash dash year dash one dot html Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to Comic Geek Speak for running my promo and already getting new listeners for me. That's great, bringing more people to the family. Please support and listen to amazing Spider-Man classics. Thanks also to TV.com for the episode summary for Will of the Siren. And remember to stay tuned after the show to hear another candidate for Steph's theme song in Zias' radio hour. Until next time. In police headquarters, Laurel I. Circe, a.k.a. the Siren, the world-famous chantus, 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 Chantus? Oh, dear. Chantus. 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 Mm. Okay. Do, 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 do. In police headquarters, Laurel I. Circe, the Siren, the world-famous Chantus, who can sing in seven different octaves...